So today is a very auspicious occasion as we finally come to the very end of our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Looking back in my files, I note with some concern that we began this series on the 1st of August 2021, so we've been at it for the best part of a year. Actually, it's not been that bad as we did have Christmas and Easter and my two-month sabbatical as natural breaks from the book. But including today's sermon, I did preach a total of 29 sermons on Revelation. 29 sermons, 464 pieces of paper, five printer cartridges and 348 cups of coffee went into this sermon series. And I trust it's been a blessing. If I were to do it all over again, I would have done some things differently. I was learning as we went along, so sometimes I only fitted the pieces together in my own mind after the fact. So we could spend the next 16 weeks leading up to Christmas going through the entire book again with all of the corrections and modifications, but I think we're ready to move on to some other parts of God's Word. I say that we're ready to move on, but as one pastor points out, no one who makes their way to the last book of the Bible ever leaves it. Oh, you may never read the book again, yet once you've spent any time in this book, you never leave it. Why? Because it will never leave you. Once you have worked your way into the last book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible begins to work its way into you, and you're never the same. And I hope and pray that we will find that to be true. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me one last time to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and we'll read verses 16 to 21. And perhaps if you're able to do so, could we please stand for the reading of God's word? The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, 
the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you do realize, too, that this is the very last word of the Lord. The words that we've just read are not merely the last words in the book of Revelation. They are also the very last words in the Bible. With these words, the scriptures end. And as we've seen, nothing more can be added the Bible ends, the canon is closed, God speaks his final perfect word. As always, there is too much to look at in this passage. We could spend a few weeks on it, but seeing as these are the last words in the Bible, I'd like us to focus on the final word on Scripture, the final word on our Saviour, the final word on the second coming, and the final word on salvation. And in each case, too, we'll look at the response that Scripture calls us to. So first of all, the final word on Scripture. This passage tells us a couple of things about the Scriptures. Number one, we learn something of their reliability. Have a look at verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. One writer puts it this way. We have read many strange things, many amazing things, many delightful things, and many terrible things in the book of Revelation. But one thing is sure, everything we have read is true. All the messages of salvation all the warnings of judgment, all the statements about history. Trustworthy and true are two great words that characterize everything about God and so also everything about God's word. God's word can be trusted. And number two in this passage, we learn something about the inspiration of the scriptures. The reason that the scriptures are trustworthy and true is because of the fact that they have been inspired by God. The second part of verse six, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants 
the things that must soon take place. This verse tells us that all true prophecy originates with God and comes through people moved by his Holy Spirit. This is the parallel verse to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, where we read the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All true prophecy comes from Jesus, and all true prophecy points to Jesus, to his message, the testimony of who he is and what he has done. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter tells us, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as the Word of God, is fully human and fully divine. And in a similar way, the scriptures, as the word of God, are fully human. You can sense the different styles of Peter and John and Zechariah. But at the same time, they are fully divine. What scripture says, God says. Without overriding the personalities or the literary skill of the human writers, the Holy Spirit so directed their spirits to say precisely what God wanted to say. We hold in our hands the very word of God. And if God's word is inspired by him and therefore trustworthy and true, what should be our response to it? Again, two things. Firstly, we are to keep God's word. Verse 7, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. In fact, the word keep is used twice in this passage. In verse 9, the angel says, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. To keep God's word means to guard it and treasure it. Not to keep it to ourselves, but to pass it on. But supremely, it means to obey it and put it into practice. Remember Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends his sermon by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The Apostle James says in James chapter 1, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And our second response to the reliability and inspiration of Scripture is couched in negative terms in this passage. In simple terms, John says, don't mess with it. Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Nothing can be added to God's word, not the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or science and health, and nothing can be taken away from it, 
I can't throw out the book of Nahum or dispense with the book of Numbers. As Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 5, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. One Bible commentator says, If we believe that what God has said in his book is not sufficient for salvation, but that we need to make certain additions of our own if we are to be saved, or if we believe that some of the demands of God's book are superfluous and we can get by without observing them, then we are not only saying that we know better than God, we are, which is much worse, acting as if that were true. Rudeness he can forgive, but blind willfulness is the sin against the Holy Spirit. We have seen many warnings about false teachers in this book of Revelation, men and women who claim to be teachers and prophets, but who distort God's word. And I don't believe that it's our job as believers to draw up a list of false teachers, but I do want to warn us against an uncritical acceptance of anything and everything that claims to be Christian. Do you remember during Paul's second missionary journey, he visits the city of Berea in northern Greece, and we read in Acts chapter 17, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This was the Apostle Paul, and they were taking out the scriptures and examining them carefully to see if what he said was true. Now, please understand, you do not need to be able to read Greek and Hebrew or have a theological degree to understand God's word. You just need a translation that seeks to be faithful to the original languages, the New International Version or the New Living Version or the English Standard Version will do. And you can ask God's Holy Spirit who inspired these words and who is the spirit of truth to guide you into all truth as Jesus promised he would do. At the same time, though, scripture does not mean whatever I want it to mean or whatever my favorite Bible teacher says it means. I don't have the right to interpret scripture however I choose. There are better and worse and even false interpretations. That's true of any document, in fact. Imagine I received a letter from the South African Revenue Services. Dear Mr. Parker, you are overdue with paying your taxes. Please pay the outstanding amount of 7,000 Rand into the account below by the 1st of September. I can't take that document and say, well, you know, I like to interpret this as a love letter. I can't quite make out the signature, but somebody loves me. And, you know, the word overdue comes from two English words, over meaning above and due meaning the small droplets of water you get on the ground on a morning, which symbolize God's provision and blessing. So blessings from above. And also this letter says that I am outstanding. I could try to use that defense at my trial in court, but I don't really think it will keep me out of jail. And in the same way, there are certain rules of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic grammar and syntax that affirm some interpretations 
and rule out other interpretations. There are elements of language and culture and genre and symbolism and metaphor and idiom that support some interpretations and negate other interpretations. We always read the Bible in community. God has given his church scholars and teachers, men and women who understand the original language and culture and guide us in interpretation. And when I dig a little deeper into God's word, God's word becomes even richer and fuller as I do that. And also down through the centuries, the worldwide church of God, that much wider community, has made decisions on big issues like the person and work of Christ. They have affirmed orthodoxy and denounced heresy. We cannot just read the Bible by ourselves in isolation. All that's to say that if I find myself in the congregation, I am to carefully weigh up what I hear from the pulpit. And if I am in the pulpit, I need to give my most careful care and attention to the presentation of God's word and be open to the correction of folk in the congregation. John says, don't mess with it. Secondly, in these verses, we have the final word on our Savior. Did you notice that there are a number of titles that are given to the Lord Jesus in this passage? In verse 13, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That is the same description that we had of Almighty God back in chapter 1. So what the book of Revelation does, in case we were in any doubt, is to reaffirm the fact that Jesus is both Lord and God. Again and again, the book uses phrases that are used to describe God and uses them also of Jesus. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So again, the first and the last, but also the beginning and the end. Pastor Darrell Johnson puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. Everything has its source in Jesus Christ. Everything in the universe is stamped with the character of Jesus Christ. Every person on this planet owes her or his existence to Jesus Christ and finds his or her pattern for living in Jesus, and the inherent destiny of all creation is Jesus Christ. He is finally irresistible. He is inescapable, the beginning and the end. We read something else about the Lord Jesus in verse 17, where he says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And Jesus is the root of David because he is David's creator. And he is also David's offspring because David was Jesus's great, 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 great grandfather. It's speaking about the dual nature of Jesus, that he is one person with a divine nature, the root of David, and a human nature 
the offspring of David, both completely God and completely human. And then, there, and then there is that lovely title for Jesus that we don't often use, but that is extremely beautiful and meaningful, the bright and morning star. The morning star is beautiful, and so is the Lord Jesus. As a teenage boy, I couldn't really relate to the concept of Jesus being beautiful, but I'm a little older now. And I find the term more meaningful and relevant. There is something beautiful about a man who comes to us full of grace and truth. There is something enthralling, captivating, compelling about the Lord Jesus. The hymn writer puts it well, Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. The morning star is a beautiful title, but it's also a meaningful one. Remember that the book of Revelation is a discipleship manual for Christians who are about to be tortured and killed for their faith. The Christians to whom John was writing would shortly be thrown to the lions, used as target practice by gladiators, or burned at the stake. The darkness of persecution was rapidly descending, and yet in this darkness, in fact in the very deepest darkness, Jesus the morning star still shone. As John puts it in the opening verses of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it. One writer says, The morning star often appears between two and three at night, when the darkness is complete and the faintest sign of morning is not yet visible. So small that it threatens to vanish, the star seems unable to vanquish the overpowering darkness, Yet when you see the morning star, you know that the night has been defeated. For the morning star pulls the morning in behind it, just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. If you and I can just see Jesus in our circumstances, we can keep going. It may still be difficult, but when we see him in them, we know that the night has been defeated. The time is near because the star is near. Dark though it may still be, it will never again be totally dark. What is our response to this one last glimpse of our Saviour? It is the response of worship. Have a look again at verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers the prophets and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John must have been a slow learner because this is the second time that he has tried to worship one of the angelic beings. And I think that this simply gives us a sense of how overwhelming this entire experience must have been for John. Remember, the man is in his 90s. 
We feel overwhelmed just reading about the vision. Imagine how it must have been to feel and experience it firsthand. I love what Eugene Peterson has to say on these verses. He asks, why does John have such a hard time getting it right? Why do we? Because it is easier to indulge in ecstasies than to engage in obedience. It is easier to pursue a fascination with the supernatural than to enter into the service of God. Revealing angels have always proved more popular than the revealed God. It is not surprising that from time to time we find ourselves in awe, worshipping some particularly attractive messenger of the divine. St. John was not exempt. Still, rebuke must be immediate and stern. Get up, get on your feet, worship God and only God. Angels, prophets and fellow Christians stand on the same level and kneel together on the same ground as worshippers. Someone has pointed out that the words worship God are a good summary of the entire book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ and we are to worship him. Thirdly, in this passage, we have the final word on the second coming, on Jesus's return. And there is a consistent theme throughout this passage. Have a look again. Verse 10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. We struggle with this, don't we? Because almost 2,000 years have passed since these words were written, and it feels a little like this promise has failed. One writer points out, though, that God is more concerned with the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes than he is with satisfying our ideas of appropriate timing. And the Apostle Peter also reminds us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Perhaps it would be good to remember that the word soon can also mean suddenly, unexpectedly, as Jesus himself told us. And if this is the case, then our only response must be expectancy. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. And again, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. If Jesus could return at any moment, tomorrow morning or this afternoon, then his return should speak to me about what I shall be doing and thinking today and what I am planning for tomorrow. Some of you may know that one of the earliest Aramaic prayers that we have is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Maranatha, our Lord come, similar to the words here, come Lord Jesus. And the words reflect two realities. 
firstly the longing for the bodily return of Jesus, but also, secondly, his coming as Saviour and Lord into our experience now, soon, today, this very hour. Fourthly and finally, these verses give us the last word on salvation. Almost the very last words of the Bible are an invitation. Verse 17, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. It's an invitation that was issued even before the Lord Jesus appeared, the first time. Years before, in fact, Jesus' first appearing, God said through the prophet Isaiah, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. This is an open invitation to anyone and everyone. But the invitation does need a response. If you've ever received a wedding invitation, you'll be familiar with the four little letters RSVP. The letters represent the French words, respondez s'il vous plaît, literally respond if you please, or more simply, please respond. Pastor John Stott tells a story about an Eastern European man who came to England and was invited to his first wedding, and he battled to understand what these letters meant. He said to his wife and family, what does this mean? What must I do? And eventually, after a few days worrying, he called them all together and said, I know what this means. It means remember to send wedding present. <laughs> no, <laughs> it doesn't. There is nothing we need to bring. We are openly invited. We simply need to respond. And exactly how we are to respond is recorded for us in verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those who enter the city don't do so because of their own goodness, but simply because they have washed their robes. As we read back in chapter 7, they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins on our behalf. We say yes to him. Notice, though, that it is possible to ignore and reject salvation. And notice, too, that there is a time limit on this invitation. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. 
whenever we go to the Canal Walk shopping center, I always smile when I go to pay for the parking because on the digital display on the pay machine, there is a little message, change is possible. We just moved to Cape Town when I saw that first and I went home and told Michelle, wow, even the parking meters in Cape Town come with a motivational message, change is possible. <laughs> These verses remind us, however, that there will come a day, an hour, a moment when change will be impossible, when no further opportunity will be given for repentance. At the moment of Christ's return, he will either find us continuing to do wrong or continuing to be holy in his holiness, and we will remain in that state for all eternity. And the urgency of this appeal in these verses is quite remarkable. Right up to the last verses of Scripture, Jesus is inviting us to come, come, come. Have you come to him? Have you received his forgiveness? Are you living with him as the very center of your life? And if not, today is the day of salvation. Right now is the appointed time. You may not have another opportunity. And so we come to the very last line in the book, the benediction of verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ begins and ends with Jesus. Ultimately, the book is all about him. This past week, I came across a wonderful poem by Annie Johnson Flint which captures something of the theme of Revelation and all that we have considered. And with this, we'll close. The poem is called The Lord Himself. It is not for a sign we are watching, for wonders above and below, the pouring of vials of judgment, the sounding of trumpets of woe, it is not for a day we are looking, not even the time yet to be, when the earth shall be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. It's not for a king we are longing to make the world kingdoms his own. It is not for a judge who shall summon the nations of earth to his throne. Not for these, though we know they are coming, for they are but adjuncts of him before whom all glory is clouded, beside whom all splendor grows dim. We wait for the Lord, our beloved, our comforter, master and friend, the substance of all that we hope for, beginning of faith and its end. We watch for our Saviour and Bridegroom, who loved us and made us his own. For him we are longing and looking for Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen.